You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Hey, good morning. How are y'all? Okay, okay. We're going to be quiet this morning? We're going to be quiet? Okay, all right, all right. Hey, uh, Bleeker, I know you just walked out. Faith, tell him I love him. Um, I, I feel honored to be here. I truly do. And uh, I, I do care a lot about this church. Uh, I care a lot about uh, you. And I think about y'all a lot. And I, I keep up with y'all through uh, my friends here. Uh, some of my friends uh, help lead this congregation. And some of my friends are in this congregation. And so it truly is a meaningful opportunity for me to be with you. Um, it's also interesting just to kind of think about preaching this particular message uh, in Plano, uh, because I, I grew up in Plano, and when I say this type of message, I'm going to be preaching a story that's most commonly known as the, the parable of the prodigal son. Uh, and I think as we get into it and through it, we're going to see that there's more than just one person in this story. There's actually a compassionate father with two sons, and um, and I'm going to preach it through the vantage point more uh, through the lens of the prodigal. And, and I'll do that largely because that's the part of the story that I most resonate with. Uh, this feels very biographical for me in a lot of ways. And I'm, I'm going to kind of let you into that and explain what I mean. When I, like I said, I grew up just right down the road in Plano. And, um, and in sixth grade, my family... Uh, went through some really challenging times that, that set really all of us on somewhat of a collision course. And uh, I, I'll just kind of give you some high points to help provide a bit of a sketch. When I was in sixth grade, I, I started, uh, or at least I was introduced into uh, alcohol. Alcohol became drugs. Drugs and alcohol became uh, somewhat of a lifestyle. And, and all that came with that particular lifestyle. When I was in the eighth grade, uh, somebody invited me to a church camp uh, from a local church here in Plano. And so I went to this church camp, which was somewhat foreign for me to attend something like this. I get there. I'm there for for an hour, one hour into my time. And I was in my dorm room uh, smoking a cigarette, which you're not allowed to do at church camp, uh, come to find out. And uh, I, I get in trouble for that. They search my belongings and find that I had brought all sorts of contraband, vodka, beer, uh, all for the week. And there was a decision to be made. Uh, Do we let this kid stay or do we send him home? And thankfully, somebody there recognized that we're putting on a camp like this in hopes that kids like this would come, right? In hopes that God would do something in the heart and the life of a kid like this. So they let me stay. Now, they didn't let me stay without conditions. One of the conditions that they let me stay with was there was a guy that kind of shadowed me throughout that entire week. His name was Tom Bailey. And so I got to spend a week with Tom, and it was a good week. And I would say it was a meaningful week. It just wasn't a life-changing week. I get out, and I go into my ninth grade year. My ninth grade year at Vines High School, right down the road, was a tough year. I eventually get pulled out of Vines High School. I go to rehab. Uh, and after rehab, I transfer to Shepton High School. This is before there was Plano West. In rehab, rehab did not take. What rehab did was give me ideas of other things to do. And so that's what happened for me 
in ninth grade. I started doing more, kind of more of the same, more exploring, more out in that particular life. Uh, By my 11th grade year, I was kicked out of the district. I was disinvited, unwelcomed to be a part of Plano Independent School District. And uh, that culminated with me being woken up on, uh, on a morning by two police officers. And those police officers then escorted me to a car, which then drove me to an airport, which I was then put on a plane, and I flew to Harlingen, Texas, uh, where I was then uh, brought to Marine Military Academy, uh, which is tough, and uh, it's not a place that I wanted to be. And I'm at Marine Military Academy, or MMA. I was angry, Uh, I was frustrated, I felt betrayed, Um, I had a whole lot of emotions, and I think about my family who, in their efforts trying to reach a kid, uh, trying to rescue a kid, candidly. Uh, I was supposed to be there for the semester and to finish out the semester there. I was there for a couple of months before I made somewhat of a jailbreak, all right? And that's a different story for a different sermon. Uh, but I, I did. I escaped out of Marine Military Academy. And the escape looked like this. Uh, the short of it is I got in a car with a buddy who happened to be going to Padre Island for spring break. And so he essentially picked me up on the way. I leave Marine Military Academy. We pull over on the side of the road. I ditch all the belongings that I had with me, which was a backpack. Uh, and I show up in Padre with shoes and shorts. And that's it. Uh, So I fit right in um, to the scene. I stayed there for a week. It was was kind of an awful week, if I look back through the lens now, and I thought it was an awesome week when I was there. I leave Padre, come back to Plano, and I don't have a home to go to or a school to go to or a place to belong to. So I kind of bounced around to where eventually my dad let me come back in under some conditions. I I told him I would meet those conditions, and I lied, and I never did. The only one that I did meet is that I would keep up my grades. I eventually graduate, and here I am, uh, two weeks before I'm going to go to a community college in Austin, Texas. Uh, I'm at a field party just down the road off of Frankfurt and the Tollway, and um, the party takes a turn, and I'm there with three other friends. And the turn becomes an aggressive turn, and it becomes a tense situation. And the next thing that I know, somebody from my left just drops me. Uh, and so I fall down. That, that group of guys collapses on the three of us, and they pummel us. Uh, they send us all to the hospital. So I get up from under that scrum of angry teenage stuff, and I begin to run to the truck to get out of there, and, and as I'm running, my, my jaw is unhinged. It's broken here and broken here. I then walk into the emergency room, uh, and my dad's there, uh, and I walk in. I am covered in blood. I've been using all kinds of things that I had told him that I was no longer using, which my guess is he was walking more in denial than in reality. And the other three guys were also with me, and they looked very similar. I go into surgery that night to get the jaw fixed. I wake up the next morning. My jaw is wired shut. And uh, it was that way for the next eight weeks. And the picture, which is somewhat of a graphic picture, uh, 
I feel like captures with a sense of clarity where I was. I wake up, I lean over the hospital bed, and I vomit. Um, my guess is most of you have not vomited with your mouth wired shut. Um, it's, not, it's not a great feeling, it's not a great sight. It is a great picture of where I was. It's a great picture of a prodigal. It's a great picture of somebody who is stuck and frustrated and in a mess. And I think, and here's what's sad to say, it's not just a picture of where I was, it was somewhat a picture of who I was. There was something in me that was broken. I mean, I could just look back at all the years from let's just call it 12 to 19, and I could see this decay, this slide, this way down, this cascading descent, if you will, that all of my best efforts, all of my best efforts led me right to that moment. And there's all kinds of factors and there's complexities, but if I could just boil it down to one simple reality, my heart was broken and I didn't know how to fix it. My heart was hurting and I was trying to make that hurt go away and I'd try this or I'd try that and I'd try this and I'd try that and I could stuff and compartmentalize and play the cool and do this or do that, but none of it actually worked. None of it actually got me what I actually needed. What it did is it just reinforced the spiral down. And for some of you here this morning, you can identify with that. You can resonate with that story because although it may not look like mine in the same way, you can identify with being far from home. You know what it's like to be in that spiral and you can't get out. Kind of the vortex, the force of it, it's just too strong and it just brought you down. Or maybe your life never really collapsed like that and it's very polished. It's very strong and sturdy on the outside, but on the inside, you know the hollow feeling that I also had. You know what it's like to be empty and struggling and alone and full of shame and stuck, and you don't know what to do. And so for you, maybe it looks more like success and achievement and more work, more stuff, more things, and there's somebody in this story that looks like you. Here's what I want you to see in the story of the prodigal son. It's in Luke chapter 15. And what's happening in the book of Luke, Luke announces in verses, chapters 1 and 2, the birth of Christ. The king has come. And in chapters 3 through 9, what Luke is going to start doing is talking about Jesus announcing the kingdom. So Jesus shows up and he's saying, the kingdom is here. So Jesus is born, he announces the kingdom, and then he moves in chapters 9 through 19 as he makes his way from Jerusalem and he teaches along the way. There are essentially two parties at play, two banquets, a battle of banquets, if you will, as one commentator put it. There's a banquet that he's having with the chief priests and the scribes and the religious leaders, and then there's a banquet that he's having with the tax collectors and the sinners. And the fact that he's having a feast or dining with this group of people energizes this group of people to call some things out in Jesus. So when we get to chapter 15, in verses one and two, 
Check out who's around. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners, and he eats with them. So then Jesus goes to tell three parables. So you feel the tension in the room, the battle of the banquets, the the battle of ideologies, the insiders and the outsiders, those who belong, so to speak, and those who never belong. And Jesus says, let me tell you some stories. And he tells the parable of the lost sheep. You have these hundred sheep, 99 who stay and one who strays away. And then you have a shepherd who leaves the 99 to go look for the one. And when that one is found, he picks it up and brings it back to the flock. And then there is joy in heaven. Catch it. Then he goes on, he tells the parable of the lost coin. There's 10 coins. A woman loses one and she goes and she searches the house until she finds it. And she finds the coin. She is filled with joy. And Jesus says, there is joy in the angels. And then he says, there's a parable of sons. They have a lost son. The son comes home and there is joy in the father. And so in each one of these parables, there's a consistent theme, and the theme is this, the theme of being lost and being found resulting in joy. A theme of being lost and being found resulting in joy. And the joy, I want you to see how the joy works together. In the first parable, the joy is in the heavens. In the second parable, the joy is in the angels. In the third parable, the joy is in the Father. And so what Jesus is saying is all of heaven, the collective chorus of the angels are joining their father in celebration when the lost come home. And if that's not good news for you this morning, I don't know what will be. And I want you to see, and we're going to read it here in a second, the various contrasts that are set up in Luke 15 in this particular parable. You see the contrast beginning with a lost son in verse 12, and then the son who's found. You see extravagant waste in verse 13 with extravagant celebration in verse 23. You see total loss and total gain, verses 14 and 22. You see degradation and shame in verse 15, repentance in verse 21. And then you see rejection in verse 16 and total acceptance in verse 20. I also want you to have a sense before we read it as you look and feel what that descent for the son must have felt like. You see, the son leaves home with cash in his wallet, so to speak, confidence on a journey. He asks in a very brash way, give me what is mine, and he takes off. We don't know the reasons why. We don't know the story behind it, but there's some kind of split. There's some kind of fracture here that causes the son to want to get up and go, and he does. And he leaves home. And there is a theme in this parable about what leaving home is like. When you leave home, when you leave the Father, and the more and more distant you become from home, the more isolated you actually are. And so the son will begin to experience isolation and loneliness. And then his circumstances change. What seemed to be awesome, what seemed to be so right, what seemed to be maybe cool or fun or full of whatever, it eventually starts to erode like it always does. 
And then Jesus says a famine comes in the land. And in that famine, all the abundance is now gone and he's left bare. So he goes out and he tries to find a gig, he tries to find some work, tries to find a job and feel the cascade, leaves home, distance, isolation, loneliness, and now he's in a position where he's working with pigs. Now for a Jewish man to be working with an unclean animal, this is absolute shame. And it's not that it's isolation and then shame, it's isolation, loneliness, and shame. And so the shame is now present in this son's picture. And he's working with the swine. Thoughts begin to circle in his mind and in his heart. And the pains start to show up in his gut. He's hungry. But he didn't have anything. He didn't have anything. He left resource. He squandered wealth. It's all gone. You been there? And so he finds himself in a position of such desperate need that he looks out and thinks, I would even eat that. I I would eat the food that the pigs are eating. Isolation, loneliness, shame, need, and then he moves into desperation. He begins to call and ask for help and realizes no one will give him anything. And so the final state that we see and experience with the son is one of hopelessness. There's nowhere to turn. There's nothing to do. There's no food. All of the party has ended, so to speak, and he's just left in the squalor. You need to feel that. I, I can rehearse, and I still do rehearse, what it was like to be there. The feelings of shame, like I've screwed this up, I've wasted, I don't get those years back. I mean, that's one of the hardest things about this reality in my own life, when I look back on it, in all that God has done, I still don't get those years back. They're still gone. It still kind of pains me to think about that. And and the son, he's in it. He's in this situation. Well, he eventually comes home. We're going to read it here in a second. And I want you to feel the way the parable ends. You're going to see the father interacting with both sons. And the parable ends with a bit of a haunting question. Because the father is going to invite and entreat the older brother, the older son, to come in. And we don't know if he does or doesn't. It just kind of ends on a cliffhanger. It ends with you asking the question, did he do it? Like, did, did, he, did he make the right call? Did he make the right decision? Did he enter into the joy that was before him? And Jesus asked it in such a way that that question lingers and haunts us even in this room this morning. And he's saying this to you and to me, will you come in? Will you come home? Like what will keep you from crossing over the threshold of the house to enter into the celebration? And for one son, part of the frustration and the challenge in his reality is he's covered in filth. And the other son, he's cloaked in a false righteousness. And both, both realities are keeping both boys from being home. 
And the reality is on a morning like this, we've got a room that's filled with both as well. We've got some in here who won't cross the threshold because there's a prideful obstinance of heart. There's a religious kind of self-righteousness, an entitlement that has been bred in a heart, and there's a bunch of reasons why that could happen, but it keeps us from coming home. It keeps us from entering into the joy that we're being invited into. So with all of that context in mind, let's read Luke 15, starting in verse 11. And he said there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had. He took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose, and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. And he ran, and he embraced him, and he kissed him. And the son said to, his, said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven, and before you I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe. Put it on him. Put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost, and he's found. And they begin to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and he came and he drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant, and he said to him, your brother, he's come home. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound, but he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and treated him, but he answered his father, look. These many years I have served you. I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never even gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who's devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It's fitting to celebrate and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and he's found. If I could give you one point, one kind of admonition, one charge, one invitation for the morning, it would be this, to any and all who would hear, return home. Return home because God is gracious and hopeful to celebrate. Return home because he's gracious and hopeful to celebrate. The invitation is real. It's genuine. And you have a father who is compassionate and waiting for your return. He's waiting 
for sons and daughters to come home. In verse 11, we see the beginning of a reckless journey. We see the son who makes his way out of the homestead, out of the inheritance, out with his pockets full of cash to to kind of go on his own. And I want you to see the descent that I was talking about. Verse 13, he squandered his property in reckless living. Verse 14, he spent everything. Verse 15, he was sent into the fields to feed pigs. Verse 16, he was longing to be fed and no one gave him anything. That August morning when I woke up and I found myself in that hospital room, it was interesting, like the culmination of feelings that I had. It's like they were all laying on top of me. Frustration, anger, shame, disappointment, but also a fear of what it would look like if I continued. Like, I don't know what will happen if I keep going this way, but I know this much. This is where I am today, and this is the trajectory that I'm on. So it unsettled me, it scared me. And again, just invitationally want you to consider what it's like for people who are there. Now it's easy to point to and blame and say you shouldn't have done this and you shouldn't have done that, and you're right. And here's what you need to hear me say. All of those decisions were decisions that I made. They were decisions that I willfully chose to make. And there's a bunch of complexities and layers to why and all the psychology behind it, but I just own it. I did it. I did those things. And for some of you, some of you, that harsh reality is true about you as well. You wrecked your marriage. Like you drove your kids away. You made a series of decisions that now you're locked in some addictive cycle. That's true. You did it. It's there. There, There's no kind of hiding from it, even if we try. And boy, sometimes, sometimes all leaving home really is about is hiding from that reality. It's like we just kind of create distance more and more and more over time from people that love us, people that are close to us, people that care. It creates a sense of isolation and separation. I can't tell you how many people I had around me who were buddies with me and who were kind of acquaintances and friends and yet how lonely I was. You've been there. You've been in that posture. And so this son, this is how he wakes up. This is where he finds himself. And here's the hope that I want to put before all of us this morning is this. He didn't have anything to do. He didn't have a job. He didn't have food to eat. There's a whole bunch of things he did not have, but he had a place to go. And more than having a place to go, he had a person he could return to. He could go home to his father. And you see in verse 17, he comes to this place where it says this, but when he came to himself, The the language there used in the Greek kind of hearkens to some repentance language. It's like the son, he wakes up. He sees some things. He recognizes some things. And I remember in that hospital room saying to my dad, I can't keep doing this. I didn't know what that meant. 
I, I didn't know what was in store. I didn't know what the next day or the next week had before me. But I knew I came to myself. This can't continue. It can't. And he said, I will arise and go to my father. There's a quote from Augustine that kind of haunts me here. He says this, you never depart from us. And he's talking to the Lord. You never depart from us, but yet only with difficulties do we return to you. I wish that wasn't as true as it often is. And so the son in the pigsty of a life, both on the outside and even more sadly on the inside. He says, I'm going to get up. I'm going to go home. And I don't know how long that journey home was, but I can guarantee you this. It was a long enough journey that when he begins to make it, I, I can just hear the deafening shouts that probably sounded something like, oh, you can't go home. You screwed up too much. You're too far gone. You squandered everything. You blew it all. You've got nothing to show for it. You're going to show up and you've got an older brother who's, who's kind of walking the line. You've got a dad who's going to be utterly disappointed. You can't do it. You're a screw up. You're a mess up. You can't go home. And yet, this son just puts one foot in front of the other. And I don't know how he did it, but he just makes his way home. Kind of against all the odds, so to speak. As the shame got pushed to the side, as he takes one more step and he's rehearsing this apology. Father, I'm not worthy. I've sinned against you. I've sinned against heaven. I've, I have screwed up. I, I'm not even worthy to be a son. I, I can come in as a hired hand. I, you know, put me in my place. And that's, that's what's going on in this kid's heart. Verse 20. But when his father saw him, he felt compassion. Now I want, I want to kind of shift it. And a move from this prodigal, and I want to look through the eyes of the father who you have to wonder how many nights did he lie in bed in the watches of the night, woken up with a heart filled with worry and anxiety, a heart filled with wonder. I wonder if tomorrow morning he'll be home. I wonder if it's going to be the next day or just to bring it into our context, and I know this happened in my own family as I've talked to my own parents about this season in my own life. Will I get a call? Who's gonna show up at the front porch? It's gonna be an officer? How bad is the bad news going to be? And I know for some of you, sadly, this is your reality now as your own heart grieves the loss of your own prodigals. It's just true. It's just real. And so the father, sleepless nights, hopeful mornings, at some point, he sees them. And what he doesn't do is kind of cross his arms and think, it's about time. I can't wait to lay into him. Boy, do I have some advice for him. That's not what he does. 
That's not the posture of his heart. And what Jesus is showing you here, that's not the posture of your Father in Heaven's heart. The posture of your Father in Heaven's heart is not one of a stodgy, distant father who's crusty and frustrated with his prodigals, but he's showing a different picture. He picks up his garments so he can take off after him. And he runs after the prodigal as he sees him walking as only a father can recognize the gait of his son. And he sees his son. He's filled with compassion. He chases him down. He embraces him. He hugs him. He kisses him. And he says to him, you are my son. Welcome home. And then the son, he's trying to get out all that he rehearsed. I'm not not worthy to be here. I have sinned against you. And it's almost as if the father just cuts him off. And he's calling out to the hired hands, bring the robe and and get the ring and bring the sandals. Why those things? Because the robe, it signifies you are my worthy guest. You are the one who belongs here. I want everybody to see that you are fully invited to this table. Why the ring? Because the ring, it's a signet ring which shows the authority of a son. It's like full sonship. Put the ring on. This ring belongs to you. Why the sandals? Because they're luxury. The hired hands, they don't wear the sandals. But the sons and daughters, they do. So he outwardly displays on the son what has already true about the father's heart towards him. I have received you fully. No questions asked. Come in. More than that, kill the fattened calf. We're going to celebrate. You were dead and now you're alive again is what he says. And we're going to throw a celebration. We're going to throw a party. You are received as my full son. And for the prodigals who are with us this morning, man, I can empathize with your plight. I just can. And I want you to hear and see and sense the invitation that God Almighty is giving to you right now. He's saying to you, Come home. I love you. Come home. We'll make a way. We'll make a way. Come home. And the hard part of the story is why all that music and dancing, it's where we get the word symphony from. So you can just imagine how loud and and kind of big it was. I've got the brother over here. Where is he? He's at work. He's doing what he's supposed to be doing, which is what he does day in and day out. And he begins to kind of make his way back to the house, and he calls one of the servants over, and he's like, what is, what's all this about? See, you didn't hear? Your brother, your brother's home. He's safe and sound. This is good news. And the music and the dancing that you're hearing is signaling this reality of good news. The one who is lost is found and he's all right. And the brother is frustrated. He's frustrated. And probably what was like a low-lying simmer most of his life. Duty, duty, duty. I've done everything you've ever asked of me. All my life, spotless. I've walked the line for you. And he's saying this to the Father. And you gave me nothing. 
I got no party. And the father says to the son, and the translation is this, son, it was never about your achievement. It was never about your duty. It was never about walking the line. It was always about an identity that I gave to you. It was always about grace. It's always about being my son, and all that I have is yours. Why? Because you're my son. And he says, it's right, it's fitting, it's appropriate. It's, it's what I am about that I would celebrate that your brother is home. And you just feel the tension there. And I know I've talked about that hospital bed. I told my dad that morning, my mom as well, um, I can't. I can't keep going. So I spent the next several days at home recovering. My face was like this. Had the wisdom teeth taken out at the same time. So it was just like double impact. Um, and a friend invites me to a Bible study. And uh, that friend had just come to Christ earlier that summer. He was a prodigal. He got brought home. So he reaches out to me and says, hey, do you want to go to this Bible study with me? And I was like, well, I, I don't have anything else to do right now. And so I do. I get in the car, we go, and we're driving. And he said, hey, it's at, the, it's at Tom Bailey's house. And if you remember Tom Bailey, Tom Bailey was the guy when I was in eighth grade that shadowed me at that church camp. And the first thing that hit my heart was this. I can't walk in that house. Like, I'm going to walk in. I look like I look. It's just going to be glances of I told you so. You know, like those pitiful nods, like, man, you could have avoided it. If you just listened to me. I threw you a lifeline. You didn't take it. And you squandered it all. I, I got the, the exact opposite reception. I walked in. I sat in the back. And as I sat in the back of a room filled with about 60 or 70 high school and college students, because Tom and Brenda opened their home each week as lay members of the church and work at the church. This is just a ministry that they had where they invited people like me to come in. And I sat in the back and Tom just taught. And as he taught, I heard him teach the gospel. And as he taught and preached the gospel, my heart leapt. I didn't know what it meant. I didn't, know, I didn't know what I'd do. I didn't know what the next step was. And so I walk forward. I can't talk out of my mouth barely. And I'm trying to get across to Tom. That's what I want. This heart that's been broken all of these years and me trying to fix it back to, I, I can't. That's what I want. And he begins to unpack for me the beautiful reality of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ who makes a way for prodigals to come home and be reconciled to their father. Through his death and resurrection, he is invitationally extending to you and to me a way home. There's no way home apart from him. And so Jesus made a way. Tom invites me into his life more than he invites me just in to that particular moment. He begins to disciple me. 
and care for me, lead me and love me until he passed away about seven years after that. Um, here's what's really sweet. Um, Tom was married to Brenda. Brenda was in the nine. She sat right there. Um, Brenda has since remarried, and so it's an incredibly poignant reality for me to look at Brenda and know that she was in the room that night. Uh, it's also really caring for me to know that as I preach this sermon, my mom is sitting right back there, um, and to know all that you weathered and walked through as I walked through that season. But the hope that I want to extend is not about the highlights of any particular story, but for you to know that the invitation is real. The invitation to come to Christ is real. The invitation to step forward out of your bondage, out of the pigsty, out of the isolation, out of the unwelcomed reality that is the prodigal's life into a place and a people of acceptance and grace and love because there are a people who want to mirror and be like the Father. And my hope and my prayer for this church is for you to know this, that this is a safe place for prodigals. And it's also a safe place for the crusty religious to, by God's grace, take the layers off. And at the end of the day, we're not identified as a prodigal or as an older brother, but we're identified as looking like the Father. Looking like a people who are filled with compassion and grace. Looking like a people who are filled with invitational love to hope. Looking like a people who are eager to celebrate the realities that you can be saved. And so I would just lay this before you and say yet again, come home. Come home. Would you bow your heads as we pray together? I'm going to read this over you. It's out of a great book called Gentle and Lowly. And to think about all of the excuses that keep us from coming home. all of the self-deceptive justifications, all of the prideful obstinance, or whatever it might be. The cadence goes like this, but I'm a great sinner, say you. I will in no wise cast you out, says Christ. But I'm an old sinner, say you. I will in no wise cast you out, says Christ. But I'm a hard-hearted sinner, I will in no wise cast you out. But I'm a backsliding sinner. I will in no wise cast you out, says Christ. But I have served the enemy all my days. I will in no wise cast you out. But I have sinned against the light. I will in no wise cast you out. I have sinned against mercy, say you. I will in no wise cast you out, says Christ but I have no good thing to bring. I will in no wise cast you out. Father, you are compassionate and gracious, kind and merciful. 
and you will in no wise cast us out. I pray for hearts in this room, and and I certainly don't know where almost anybody is. And I'm asking that just in the secret places of hearts, you would do a deeply profound and personal work that is the work that you do. It's the work you've been doing, O oh, ancient of days. And so would you, would you make a way home for some prodigals this morning? Would you allow some religious, entitled, self-righteous folks just to shed the burdens and the layers of such filth? pray that you would move in hearts to be more like the Father. Also pray for parents in here that I know, I know their hearts are pricked as they think about a son or a daughter. Would you give them hope? Would you give them prayerful hope? And I pray for those prodigals that they would come home. I do love this church, and I have great confidence in what you're doing here. And so I ask that you would make it so in them and through them. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.